Historically, the food industry has been pretty close with politics because, of course, food is essential. It's essential for survival. It makes total sense. So in this episode, we look at the tools that the food industry uses to influence politics. And we look at, of course, lobbying, but also into the other ways of doing it. This is the second part of our book talks on food politics, how the food industry influences nutrition and health by Mario Nestle. Find out how lobbying is different in the US versus Europe. What a bunch of concepts like soft and hardballing, the revolving door and commercial malnutrition mean. And also an insider story of Frank working with food safety authorities, or should I rather say trying to work with them. You're listening to season seven. Is that, is that true? Is that already season seven? My God. <laughs> You're listening to season seven of Red to Green, where Frank and I, my co-host, are reading books and, and chatting about our questions and answers and conspiracy theories regarding them. <laughs> if you didn't listen to the first part of this episode, you can jump right in anyway. My wonderful co-host is Frank Alexander Kühne, the managing director of the Adelbert Raps Foundation, a foundation funding applied scientific research, for example, with grants for food science focused on sustainability and impact. More on that in a bit. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food sustainability. And in this season seven, we discuss key takeaways from books on the food system. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Frank Kühne. Before we get all wrapped up in the actual talking about lobbying, let's maybe clarify what lobbying is. And here's a quote from the book. Lobbying is any legal attempt by individuals or groups to influence government policy or action. A definition that explicitly excludes bribery. Historically, lobbying has always involved three elements. Promoting the views of special interest groups. Second, attempting to influence government laws, rules or policies that might affect those groups. And third, communicating with government officials about laws, rules, or policies of interest. In the book, she doesn't really talk about Europe much, but no. I do find it's important that we have a bit of a comparison talk between the US and Europe. I also find that very interesting because the issues that come up with lobbying are much more severe in the US than they are in Europe. And that's not because Nestle and Unilever in Europe are less interested in changing the political system, but because the system itself is less inviting, less prone mm. to massive influence. And one of the main ones is that in the US, it's so important for politicians to raise funds for the next election. But in Europe, in most places, that's not a main criteria. Do you actually know, like... In Europe, it's funded by the government, right? Like the whole the whole process of doing PR and... Like I think so. There's quite a lot of money. There's a budget for your marketing spending in an election. And that is somehow related to the what kind of share you already have in the parliament or in the voting system. It would be interesting to see if... Because I know that there's been a lot of money being collected to support certain 
people in the elections. I was wondering if there's a similar system than in you in the European Union, where there's a quota that they definitely will get. Very similar to the European Union, where the government or the European Union is paying a share of the PR and marketing expenses for an election. Does they have the same system in the United States, meaning is the US government or the state government giving you a certain amount of money so you're being able to actually market yourself in the election process? Or is it always being funded by third-party money? I guess the main thing is that it's it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't sure. be enough yeah, to yeah, actually win. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. the key criteria. It's more binary, whereas in Europe, it's all compromises. Compromise, yeah. yeah the so, diverse so, party system... Yeah, yeah, so different discussions. Yeah, you exactly. Have to, you have to meet on the common ground. Yeah. So you can yeah. slightly influence policy changes, but it's not as severe. Like there was a there was a really interesting part uh, in a book on Monsanto that we're reading, and there was a, a story of George W. Bush where he was visiting a Monsanto factory. And it was recorded and um, the Monsanto executives were saying, oh, it's like going through an approval process with the FDA and it's taking a bit of time. It's also okay if it takes a bit of time. It's actually quite funny, like the Monsanto executives were pretty reasonable. They're like, yeah, no, it's part of the process. And then George W. Bush, he was like, I'm in the business of deregulation. Just call me. And she just grabbed, literally like the policy was fast tracked and it was just approved really fast. And I was like, wow, that's wild. But of course, if you have a two-party system, it's also, yeah. of course, it's not that simple, right? But it becomes a bit more simple. Um, you don't have to manage dozens and dozens that can be voted. I think the, you, you are referring now to this whole, like what Marion does is she explains how does the food industry influence the policymaking. And it's... With the example of George W. Bush, it's by money. Like they they give money for yeah. the election. They give money gifts for certain things. Yeah. So the politician is influencing government in a certain way in a certain direction. That's I think was the first like typical tool or out of the yeah. toolbox typical tool being used. The other one which I found I liked is the term the revolving door. Yeah, just a great term, basically saying people's switching sides continuously from the industry into the United mm -hmm. States Department for Agriculture USDA and being in a certain position there and then going back again into the industry, which is a bizarre system, understandable somehow. Yeah, but on the other side, I find that very corrupt. And mm. it reminded me of a different area. Most of you will, will remember the opioid crisis in the United States with the involvement of the company Perdue. Perdue. When I've read about it, it, they had a similar issue. They had the revolving door. Like management people of Perdue was part suddenly of the USDA, of the mm. FDA, and then returning in the industry back again in the time of the verification process of their products. So mm. that seems to be a repeating pattern in the United States, the revolving door. Here's a little shout out for an exciting opportunity. The Adelbert Raps Foundation funds research on sustainable food. This can be on alt proteins connected to spices and herbs or soil. And I asked Frank the hot question, how much funding research projects can receive? 
A typical research project starts with a couple of hundred euros where a bachelor student wants to write something about, I don't know, insects and the food system. And then it goes up to three-year project with a PhD, a budget of 200,000 euros, anything in between. So really depends on what people bring to our table and what we get excited about. This is a seriously great opportunity for food scientists and startups. So check out the Adelbert Raps Foundation by typing it into Google or follow the links in the comments to the Adelbert Raps Foundation. Back to the episode. But I also think in Europe, like the European Food Safety Authority, the EFSA, they all... <laughs> They're all the same. It's just have acronyms. Marian Nestle also has that in her book. 50% of their experts having ties to Monsanto led to a questioning and a reevaluation of their judgments. And we, we will see that in our later chat on Monsanto. On the other side, 50% are not tied to Monsanto, which is always quite a good balance to have a democratic discussion about the role of Monsanto or Roundup. But yes, okay, yeah. <laughs> We've got 60% are not tied to Monsanto. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Reframe. There you go. 50% yeah? are not tied to a single major company, which influences 90% of all GMOs yeah. in the world, actually. Always looking at the glass half filled with pesticides. Four. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be moderate in all these things, you know, positively uh, framing the whole thing. See? Okay. The 50% of the experts are not tied to the industry. So then just to pick up on the US versus European Union, yeah. in the US, it's seen as a legitimate tradition to use lobbying, whereas in the EU, it's considered more questionable and a bit shady. Actually, like <laughs> I used to be interested in becoming a lobbyist. When I was like 15, really? I was actually reading a book on headhunting and one on lobbying. It was like modern assassin style, like oh, a bit like badass. I want to become a headhunter. True <laughs> <laughs> crime, headhunting. I was actually really <laughs> enticed by lobbying. And in Europe, it seems to be much more of a people business. An important side note, political party funding and lobbying regulations actually varies across European countries. Some countries allow companies to financially support political parties through donations or sponsorships, with varying levels of transparency and accountability. Many European countries have regulations in place to ensure transparency and to prevent excessive influence, including limits on donations, disclosure requirements, or restrictions on contributions. For example, in Germany, you're allowed to individually, so as an individual person, donate to a political party, but it's limited to 10K. Companies are not allowed to directly fund a political party. In the US, money has more leverage because in the US, it goes from corporations directly to politics, whereas in Germany, it's not allowed. It can only work indirectly like Mostly it's from corporations to civil society. I don't know what civil society... Like. It, it's, it's kind of Verbandespin, you would say in Germany. It's indirect. What you do is you fund a foundation or an interest group being interested in the use of new technologies to grow products in the field of farmers. Terra and Monsanto's putting money into that. And obviously they're going to promote Monsanto Roundup as an interest group. You create some kind of group that is interested in 
lobbying for mm. spices being natural products, and they would then try to influence the policy making indirectly. There's not a direct link. The cash is not flowing directly to the politician. It is going through an interest group, creating some kind of knowledge influence to into the policy making process. Studies are being financed through that. An interesting story I just experienced last year, we're funding research. Mm -hmm. And it's not research where we say people have to find the following results or anything like that, but basically a scientist is coming to us that I've got this question, I need funding for that, would you be funding our research? And you won't believe it, but there's an institution, their task is to define how to analyze our food. Like they define how do we find pesticides in a product? basically. Mm -hmm. And it's a state organization. They are linked to the European Union. They're linked to the German government. And I sat down with the head of that organization and like her issues, they don't have any kind of insight into the industry. Like, how are you actually working? Where is it coming from? Like, they really lack expertise. Mm. And I said, more than happy, come into our factory, sit down with our experts, they explain you anything and everything you ask. And if you're interested, we're happy to fund any kind of research if there's an overlap of a certain process we are interested in and mm -hmm. you're interested in. And then immediately said, I can't do that. I said, why can't you do that? And she said, because you're linked to industry, Frank. Your foundation is linked to your company. And because that kind of close interest doesn't allow me to work with you. I can choose you as an, an interview partner and ask you questions. I can visit you. But I always have to be independent in regard of any study I'm doing, any mm. work I'm doing. And that was quite interesting. Like she's very, she pushed me really back, said, can't do that. Sorry, Frank. Interesting. What so, did you think about uh, that? Shame, opportunity missed. <laughs> <laughs> Knowledge no, could think, have been I, I, created. <laughs> yeah, that could have been. No, I think it shows the, again, the, the, it's not black and white. It shows this kind of grayish area between if we want to have a defending food safety system, like processes that understand what's happening in the industry and then by that define standard processes, how to analyze our food, they need to understand the food is being processed, the food is being treated, and so on and so on. And like, how do you manage to give people that kind of knowledge when you don't allow them to work with the industry? And then we're coming back to the revolving door. Obviously, somebody who has been working in industry is an expert mm. who could be able to actually define the processes, how to analyze our products, how to analyze our food in the best mm. possible way, because he fully understands how it works, how the system works. So I think that's, again, like 50% of Monsanto, people being linked to Monsanto, they do understand how Monsanto is working. <laughs> you mean 50% of Monsanto people being linked to Monsanto? Shocking. Oh, sorry. Shocking. I know. 50, you know what I meant. 50% of the EFSA people have links to Monsanto. It's on the other side, positively, they understand how Monsanto is working and how the system and how the product is working. Maybe a bit too But, much, okay. as I, we will see soon. I have some on research that, on this. <laughs> uh, you can agree with that. But the first thing I wanted to point out is, the one thing I wanted to point out is, those representatives of the European Union or the German government are very cautious and very careful, at least in my experience, with this kind of close cooperation to create studies together. Even if we are a civil organization, like a foundation, yeah, that has not an immediate link to any industry interests. And on the other side, the discussion with her showed me where she's lacking the insights and the expertise to actually 
define something that makes sense, hmm. which then brings back the question, how do you involve the experts in that if the experts come from the industry and how to make sure that the experts are only experts and not driven by a certain interest to shape this kind of process they defining in a way that it's benefiting for the industry and not for the society. It was a long phrase. Sorry. No, super interesting though. Personally, I think, yes, so it has its downsides, right? So both extremes have their downsides, but in general, I am actually positively surprised about how clear she was. In that she was, of, yeah, yeah. Because that is, of course, something that heightens my trust <laughs> overall <laughs> still. She doesn't work with the white sheep, but she also doesn't work with the black sheep then. Black sheep, yeah, that's true. Uh, no sheep yeah. at all. Uh, <laughs> now she's <laughs> sitting in her chamber and thinking about how do they analyze spices oh, and yes. water, <laughs> dreaming of something, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So we went through most of these topics that we didn't get to, that we can just very briefly touch on our checkoff programs in the US. They were very complicated. It's a US. I'm very thing. complicated. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you are very complicated. I have, for most people, that's a compliment. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, the checkoff program description was, yeah. I found a bit complicated, but it's just pretty much they take a certain cut of any kind of profits of a yeah. food category, mm. right? And then that's pooled to promote this food category in general, which is so yeah. funny because like, why do you need to promote a certain food category? That brings me back to the double standard of the USDA. It's something that she keeps noting. Mm. So I quote, because USDA's dual mandates to protect agricultural producers and to advise the public about diet created increasing levels of conflict. Of course, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, it doesn't align. It's, it's, of course, they're like deeply conflicted if they, their mandate is so weirdly set up. Here's a really interesting part from the book, which talks about the difference between the FDA and the USDA and their budgets. I quote, Food safety oversight is largely but not exclusively divided between two agencies, the FDA and USDA. The USDA mostly oversees meat and poultry. The FDA mostly handles everything else, including pet food and animal feed. Although this division of responsibility means that the FDA is responsible for 80% of the food supply, it only gets 20% of the federal budget for its purpose. In contrast, the USDA gets 80% of the budget for 20% of the foods. This uneven distribution is the result of a little history and a lot of politics. Maria Nestle talks in her book about how hard it is to ensure food safety and food quality with such a restricted budget. And that's especially apparent when you look at the regulation of imports. I quote, by one assessment, the FDA has become so short-staffed that it would take the agency 1,900 years to inspect every foreign plant that exports food to the United States. And she also mentions that the FDA was able to inspect only about 1% of the shipments coming into the US, compared to 8% in 1992. 
And another is softball strategy. So softball meaning softer influence strategy and hardball meaning something that's a little bit like harsh, slightly illegal even. Another strategy was public relations. So for example, promoting infant formula. Nestle was very criticized for it because especially in poorer economies, it's called commercogenic malnutrition, meaning that you you promote something that people can actually not afford. Therefore, they are suffering malnutrition. They have breast milk, which is all-inclusive, high. No, now they're spending extra money to get packaged infant formula, which is never as good as the original thing. And we just accept that. And then Nestle created the Infant Formula Audit Commission, the NIFAC, whose job was it to check any violations that Nestle would do. And literally, this commission was funded by Nestle to check on Nestle, which, of course, doesn't find anything, but still was enough to appease individuals and groups criticizing Nestle's efforts and to just just create the appearance of being more independent and more ethical. Yeah. I actually experienced that firsthand. I was working in a favela in Brazil for three months as a student. Favela is uh, the slums. Mm. in the north of Brazil, in Ieos. And this issue was in the slums actually a hot topic. So because babies were starving, because the parents couldn't afford the product from Nestle, the milk powder. Mm. And they actually had to re-educate people on breastfeeding. And so the story people being told that because if you breastfeed and you might poison your child, it's not as good, and you have to have the safety of a produced product. Whoa, really bad impact and shockingly real suddenly. It wasn't just an article or a capsule in in a book, but I experienced it firsthand. That's so crazy, yeah. I just find it so fascinating. There's a chapter on techno fruits, and there she describes just how we are trying to reinvent these superfoods and create all kinds of addition some kind and make something that's not healthy into something healthy by adding some kind of enzymes and probiotics and everything but in the end it's just laughable because it will never get to the point of being as good as just very good fresh produce most of the time and hardball techniques suing individuals or groups that have expressed negative opinions We had that in the food history season. The final episode was on the pink slime scandal. And then another hardball technique is crossing a legal line by fixing prices. Yeah. So then what to do? eh? With Stuffed and Starved, you were criticizing the book that it was so negative, but it doesn't have much of an action plan. He did have advice what needs to change. But did you have that feeling for this book as well? Very similar. Yeah, like she's pointing out where the system is not working properly and how it's being influenced, but she's not actually suggesting anything in a way how they should re... At least I can't remember that she's actually saying something about the USDA. They need to split it up into two entities. The one is interests of the agriculture system. The other one is interests of the consumers. So she's not doing that. She's basically pointing back the finger on the consumer and saying, you have to make sure that you're eating healthy. No, 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 no. So she actually describes that one of the issues is that the food industry is using similar techniques like the tobacco lobby. And fun fact, several tobacco companies got involved in food to diversify their portfolio. And the notion of 
everybody should be free to choose whatever they want and therefore every kind of marketing should be allowed sounds nice at first but at the same time it also just makes it really hard because if every company is allowed to market their candies to children with unlimited airtime no children do not have that ability to influence their choices and there's a whole mm. section of the book where she talks about children and marketing to children and even adults <laughs> like we are so influenced by the kind of food that is in our nearby supermarket i literally notice whenever i switch around like i go to a different airbnb like i switch the area that i live in lisbon then i'm eating different stuff because beforehand i was next to a portuguese supermarket and now i'm next to aldi i'm doing the whole german spiel again <laughs> <laughs> yeah she says actually it's necessary to have more guidelines and to have more regulation of what is promoted mm -hmm. how much it is promoted and to balance out corporate power so in conclusion the author explains that the emphasis on individual choice and responsibility benefits the food industry i quote if diet is a matter of individual free will then the only appropriate remedy for poor diets is education and nutritionists should be off teaching people to take personal responsibility for their own diet and health, not how to institute societal changes that might make it easier for everyone to do so. So she's criticizing that diet should actually be political and politics should be involved in helping people to make healthy diet choices for their own good. I think then she says the policy has to be different and needs to protect the consumer more strongly, but she's not changing the system in a way. Yeah, it is a bit of a, you can sort of conclude from the criticisms that she had. So one of the things that Marianne Nestler pointed out is that communities who are engaged in improving school meals, reducing childhood obesity, or aligning agricultural production with health mm -hmm. goals actually have a significant impact. So She's a big fan of But, grassroots movements, yeah, exactly. local yeah. efforts that counter industry public relations. And she describes it as the best expression of democracy in action. Of the people, by the people, for the people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, her, in, in her newer blog, in her newer published blogs, she basically said there's a great opportunity with all these influencers and mm. health conscious people talking on Instagram and on. There's a different understanding of food. But at the same time, when I read that, I said, what does the food industry stops them from buying some influencers and ask them to promote red meat? Yeah. Actually, I'm pretty sure that is the case for the ketogenic diet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ketogenic diet is literally Red meat. animal <laughs> fat. You eat a lot of animal fat, overall fat, meat and dairy. It's like the dream diet of the animal agriculture industry. Lots of fatty meat. You actually limit certain types of vegetable consumption because they mm. are too high in carbs and you completely cut out sugar and carbohydrates. That's like an example where I thought it wouldn't be hard to imagine influencers like Dave Asprey with his bulletproof diet somehow secretly funded by interest groups who want people to eat more of these Indeed. foods. I think uh, at least that would be the risk in the way she pointed out. So is it a must read? And if yes, for whom? As said at the beginning of our podcast, it's definitely a must read, specifically for people who are in the food industry and really want to understand 
how the game is being played to create policy making. Yeah. 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 I would recommend it for people who are interested in nutrition science or nutrition advice and how nutrition mm. advice is formed. That's the first group. The second group would be people who are just interested in general policy shaping and general lobbying work because I've looked into lobby work also into tobacco industry, the automotive industry. If you look at different industries, it's the same mechanics that are applied to the same system For sure. from different yeah. angles with different aims. I would say that it does help to have the to contrast it maybe with the country that you are actually based in because it is very US centric. So to summarize, Mario Nestle has an egalitarian approach, similar to Raj Patel, whose book Stuffed and Starved we've covered in the first two episodes. Here is a quote to round it off. At the moment, world hunger and starvation have everything to do with politics. End quote. It's a good reminder that innovation is important, but not the only thing. If you enjoyed this topic, check out episode 5.12 of Red to Green on Pink Slime to learn about defamation laws and how food corporations can silence critics and the media. In episode 5.11, you can learn how the Chinese government was instrumental in making China the second largest dairy nation of the world. You can connect with Frank Kühne, my wonderful co-host, and me, Marina Schmidt, on LinkedIn. You can find Frank by typing in Frank Alexander Kühne, Kühne with K-U-E-H-N-E, or by following the links in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. 